Usually, it's the soft sound of the knife that wakes me. The noise it makes when it slices through the canvas, like a whisper. I roll over to ask Celeste what it was that she said, but she can't answer, because she's already dead, staring and bloody. So I run. Other times when I imagine myself as Bailey, it's the crunch of leaves or the snap of a twig that makes me sit up straight in my sleeping bag. I stare into the dark, not realizing that the rest of my life can be measured in minutes. Even in my dreams, though, that night always ends the same way, with me dead, floating on the surface of the spring. I fade into the blackness my hair spreading out around me in a sea of blood, without ever knowing that Celeste and I have become the most famous citizens of Mount Orange, Florida. But then I wake up, take a deep breath, hear the hum of the air conditioner. I count the old glow-in-the-dark stars on my ceiling and feel the softness of clean sheets against my skin. I inhale the mountain breeze dryer sheets my mother uses, even though neither of us have ever even seen a mountain in real life. Every time, I'm hit with this rush of relief, because I'm not Bailey. I'm not Celeste either. I'm truly. And instead of bleeding out in the water, right now I'm standing on the courthouse lawn while the high school choir sings a memorial song for two long-buried girls who have always felt more alive to me than any of the people standing here dripping in the late May heat. I squint and glance up toward the sky. All that smooth, endless blue reminds me of the surface of the freshwater springs that lie right outside the city limits. It's the perfect day to be free diving out at Hidden Glen, but I felt like I had to be here. So did everyone else, I guess. Downtown Mount Orange is a three-block strip of insurance offices, real estate offices, and four or five junk stores that like to be called antique shops. Other than the memorials to Bailey and Celeste scattered around town and the old crime scene out at Hidden Glen Springs where they died, the only real things of interest are an old-fashioned ice cream parlor called The Cone Zone and a beauty salon called Curl Up and Die. Every business sports a dark green awning out front, and big planters of ferns and pink hibiscus line the sidewalks. It would be picturesque, probably, if you didn't live here. But I do. I wipe at my sweaty forehead and glance up at the Florida flag flying over the courthouse. My home state is known for four things. Alligators, beaches, theme parks, and serial killers. There's Ted Bundy, Danny Rowling, Eileen Warnos, the legendary Glades Reaper. He's maybe the worst of the worst. The things he did were so unspeakable that the mention of that name is enough to stop a conversation in its tracks. The original Florida boogeyman. But I'm not thinking about him as I stand in the baking afternoon sun, struggling to fill my lungs with thick, wet air that feels more like warm oatmeal than anything else. On a little stage at the front of the crowd, our illustrious Mayor Knox is rambling on about the new memorial fountain in the town square. I'm not thinking about him either, though. I'm thinking about Bailey and Celeste again, our own local horror story. 
The anniversary of the murders out at Hidden Glen is coming up in just a few weeks. It happened almost 20 years ago, but it's clear that nobody has forgotten about what went down out there that night, because everyone has gathered here in the hellish heat to see yet another memorial dedicated to our dead girls. When we were little, my friends and I used to pretend to be them. We didn't understand that they were dead, murdered. We only knew they were famous, their pictures framed in our school hallways, and their names written on plaques all over town. Once we understood the gruesome truth, we found other games to play. But I never lost my fascination with Bailey and Celeste. Especially Bailey. When I reenact the murders in my mind, I always play her role. It's her eyes I see it all unfold through. Her panic that swells in my chest. Her last moments that play over and over in my head. I look around the crowd. There are a lot of true crime people here today. A couple hundred at least. Podcasters and writers. Plus their fans. Creepy murder enthusiasts who travel the country visiting beautiful places where ugly things happened. These are the kind of weirdos who get off on playing detective as they pour over clues on internet forums. And there are so many more of them than any normal person would think. That's why we need another memorial. Because the lines get too long at the first five. The murder ghouls might have to wait a few seconds to snap their selfies, which might piss them off. And we can't have our guests leaving town dissatisfied. What if they didn't stay for pie at the diner and antique shopping on Dixon Street? That would be a real tragedy for this town. I glare at a woman who steps right in front of me, blocking my view. She doesn't even offer up an excuse me or a sorry. She's too busy fanning herself with her hat as sweat soaks through the back of her fancy silk blouse. She's an out-of-towner. I can tell because they're always dressed too formally. The uniform of choice in Mount Orange is shorts and a swimsuit paired with flip-flops. Put on anything else, and you're gonna stand out. It isn't only the tourists who turned out today. There are plenty of locals, too. I wave at some girls I know from school, and the lady who cuts my hair. But my eyes keep searching the crowd until they land on Celeste's mom. She skipped the last few memorial dedications, but today she's standing off to one side, staring up at the courthouse windows. When the mayor points her out, the crowd offers up a polite round of applause for the murder victim's mother. Her shoulders tighten, but her face never changes, and she never looks anywhere but up at those empty second-floor windows. Knox is bellowing from the podium now, giving his best impersonation of a Southern Baptist preacher getting really worked up on this Sunday afternoon. This mystery will be solved, he promises us, one hand raised skyward like he's waving a Bible. The guilty will be punished. Someone knows who did this, and nothing stays a secret forever. The killer is someone's son. Someone's father, someone's brother. He pauses for effect. Maybe even yours. Knox narrows his eyes at his captive audience, and a low murmur swells from the crowd, because in this town, 
speculating about the Hidden Glen murders is every bit as much a local pastime as watching the high school football team lose championship after championship. We still eye each other with suspicion after all these years, and whispers are always hanging like water droplets in the humid air. When we're waiting behind our neighbors in line at the grocery store or the bank, there's always a part of us that wonders, was it you? It does something to a person, always thinking that the person holding the door open for them could be a murderer. But none of us can give up on the guessing game. After all, there are only three unsolved murders on record in Mount Orange. Celeste and Bailey, plus my sister, Danny. Although most people think Danny's death was just a tragic accident, not worth obsessing over, which is kind of a relief in one way, because it means there's no opportunity for this town to make a buck off her memory. An accident victim's photo won't pull in tourists with cash to spend on pie and postcards. That also means there are no memorial ceremonies or golden fountains for her. So sometimes I feel like I'm the only one who notices that Danny's gone. A breeze tickles the back of my neck, and I'm grateful for that little bit of relief from the heat. Everyone in the crowd tips their bright red faces toward the sky to find the cooler air. I shiver as it moves across my slick skin, and for the briefest second, I sense someone standing right behind me, someone I recognize by the sound of their breathing. East, I say with a sigh. I know it's you. I spin around, expecting to find my boyfriend grinning and ready to wrap me up in a hug, even though it's 120 degrees and my shirt is soaked through with sweat. But no one is there. At least not anyone familiar. The mayor pushes his cowboy hat back on his head to reveal a few wet curls that hang like limp macaroni above pinprick eyes. He fans at his red face with a yellow legal pad, then ends his speech the way these things always end, with a plea for information. If anyone knows anything, or if you have any clues, no matter how small, please reach out. He thunders at us, and my hand immediately moves to cover the zipper pocket of my backpack, almost like Knox's beady little eyes have x-ray vision. One of you out there could hold the key to solving these murders and finally bringing peace to our community. His words strike the proper somber tone, if you don't pay attention to how fake they sound and how he's mostly focused on making sure our local newspaper editor, John Boy Wesley, gets plenty of good photos of him for the front page story we'll run next week. John Boy is my neighbor, plus I work for him part-time at the Mount Orange Star in the summers. I'm grateful to have the afternoon off, otherwise it might be me up there gritting my teeth when Knox waves me in for a closer shot. When it's all over, I take my turn filing by the new fountain, the lady in the sweaty silk blouse leans over me to snap a selfie, and I can't help laughing when she slips and drops her phone in the water. Before I move on, I pause for a second and run my fingers over the lettering on the gold plaque. Dedicated to the memory of Bailey Alderson and Celeste Woodward, the lost girls of Mount Orange, 
on the 20th anniversary of their deaths. Even though most of them wouldn't even recognize Danny's name, I fight the urge to remind the people around me that Mount Orange has more than two lost girls. Instead, I watch as melting tourists drift toward the cone zone for ice cream. I'm desperate for some air conditioning, so I make my way through the crowd to my truck. As I reach for the handle, I feel it again, a whisper of breath on my neck. Someone I can almost name standing close behind me. It slides across my skin like the touch of familiar fingertips, and I break out in goosebumps. I scan the crowd for East again, or maybe my mom or John Boy, but they aren't there. This time, all I see is a flash of short, coal dark hair disappearing around the corner of the drugstore. Nobody I know has hair like that. So I turn back toward my truck. That's when I notice Celeste's mother leave her spot and head toward the fountain. She's waited for the crowd to disperse, I guess, and now she's standing there alone. I stop with the truck door open and watch her pause for a few seconds to run her hands over the engraved plaque, exactly like I did. She looks up and catches me staring at her. Her eyes are fixed on mine, and it makes me uncomfortable. I've been watching her since I was a little girl, always checking for a glimpse of her in the garden when we'd drive by her house on the way to school, or when I got older, looking for a bit of her faded blonde hair when someone hurried past the newspaper office windows. I don't like the idea of her watching me, though. All I can think is that she has no idea how often I wake up worried about her daughter because I'm always Bailey in my dreams, but it's always Celeste I'm calling out for. I climb into the truck and get the AC going, then lean close to the vent and let the cold air kiss my sunburned cheeks. I take a few seconds to shoot East a text while I wait for the traffic jam to clear up. Hey, baby, you downtown at the dedication? His reply is immediate. Nope. Waiting at your place. Thought you might want to go cool off together. Or maybe get a little hotter. That last line is followed up with four kissy face emojis, a neon green penguin, and a bright blue ocean wave, even though we're an hour from the closest beach. <laughs>